Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back to the past and read some DC comics from their yesteryear of publishing. You can hear us every week on the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast. And this week we have one of my very favorite issues. Chris kind of gave this to me as a gimme, I think. It's uh, Swamp Thing number 61, cover dated June 1987, All Flesh is Grass. Written by Alan Moore, art by Rick Veitch and Alfredo Alcala. Color by Tatiana Wood, lettered by John Costanza. Edited by Karen Berger, cover price is $1. And this is from an idea by Stephen Bassett, who actually did do the, uh, I think he did do the cover, right? It's like, it the cover, like, yeah. Looks like that's his signature right there. Um, as we usually do, we're going to give you a little background info on these the folks that contributed to and the characters in this comic book. Starting with Alan Moore, a name you might have heard out there in the wild. Born November 18th, 1953 in Northampton, England, and he still does enjoy life. Uh, grew up mm-hmm. in an impoverished area of blue-collar Northampton called the Burroughs. He was a voracious reader. He did well enough in primary school to attend the more middle-class Northern Grammar School, which goes from ages... 11 to 18, I had to say that because grammar school here in the old U.S. of A, that's for the little elementary. kiddies. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> elementary. Uh, he got kicked out of there for dealing LSD. Uh, didn't really go back to school, so he wrote poems and stories for literary zines throughout the 1960s, eventually having his own zine titled Embryo. And after drifting around for a while in 1973, he began dating and then married Northampton-born Phyllis Dixon. He got a crummy office job working for the gas council. And that was the end of Alan Morton. No. Uh, <laughs> after that, he decided there's got to be a better way. Uh, he'd already actually, he, didn't want the gold, he didn't want the gold watch. No, exactly. He decided that, you know, maybe 60 years of that was not worth a uh, gold watch and a, you know, pacemaker. And a pat on the ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, he'd already done a couple of comic strips in uh, independent uh, zines and stuff. They were written and drawn by Moore, and he, uh, it's all in the alternative press. But his first paid work was in a, a comic in NME Music Magazine. I used to see that as a kid. I, I remember that when I was real young. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. That was on October 21, 1978. That was an illustration of Elvis Costello. Uh, he did a couple of strips for Sounds Magazine throughout the rest of the 1970s. He submitted an unsolicited script for Judge Dredd to the magazine 2000 AD uh, to their editor, Alan Grant. Judge Dredd was already being written at the time by John Wagner, unfortunately, so they weren't actually looking for any writers. But Grant recognized Moore's talent and asked him to do some work for Tharg's Future Shocks, which uh, at that time was, I believe, brand new. Uh, That was a a series of showcase strips that ran in 2000 AD as kind of a testing ground for new talent. Over the years, he did a lot of work for uh, 2000 AD, as well as for Marvel UK and Warrior. Uh, Warrior is where we got uh, V for Vendetta, where that first ran in serial form. Uh, Marvel Man, which we might know today as Miracle Man. And the Bo Jeffrey Saga. You ever read the uh, Bo Jeffrey Saga there? I have not. I've read a lot of old, weird, more stuff like that. Dr. Quinch and, and Squirm or whatever. The yeah, yeah, his old strip. I've heard about that. <laughs> yeah, but I've never I've never even seen the Bo Jeffrey saga. Yeah, no one ever, uh, people don't talk about the Bo Jeffrey saga. I'd be interested <laughs> to see what the heck this is. Yeah, his work for Marvel UK was pretty good, though. He did a lot of that Captain Britain stuff. That's right. That was which was thing, uh, yeah. Yeah, which was a real, real good run on that book and even features a uh, tombstone of uh, Marvel Man. Whoa. So kind of Kind of putting him in that universe a few years early. Whoa, that's like rap album level prophetic, you know? <laughs> Jeez. 
Uh, anyway, after this, DC editor Len Wayne saw his 2000 AD work and in 1983 hired him to write Swamp Thing. And oh, how he wrote Swamp Thing. Now we also have our, is it Rick Veach we're saying? Veach? I say Veach, but I don't Veitch. know. Yeah. I will say Veitch for the uh, for the sake of uh, similarity. Okay. Uh, he was born uh, May 7th, 1951 in, in Below Falls, Vermont. He was a fourth of six children in a large Catholic family. Uh, he made his published debut in, uh, with a, in a book called Two-Fisted Zombies in 1972, which was published by Last Gasp, which was uh, written by Rick's brother, Tom Veitch. Ve- <laughs> it's got to be uh, the same as his brother, right? I would, whatever I, I it would is. think so, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's a split. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, you got to wonder, maybe they don't agree on the pronunciation. Possibly. <laughs> uh, now, uh, depressed and drifting, uh, Rick solicited grants from the state of Vermont to attend the Joe Kubert School. Uh, he was part of the first graduating class in 1978, along with uh, future collaborators and artists on Swamp Thing. Uh, before him, uh, Stephen Bissett and uh, John Toddleben. Uh, he did two fantasy stories for Epic Illustrated and a six-issue miniseries called The One, which is an insane look at the Cold War, commercialism, spiritualism, and satire. Uh, he would start drawing Saga of the Swamp Thing at issue number 37. This was June of 1985, and it was the introduction of John Constantine. Uh, you know, do you, you pronounce it Constantine or Constantine? I pronounce it Constantine, which apparently is yeah. incorrect. Yeah, because every British guy here says Constantine. But, uh, there's even something in also. Hellblazer that where he he does say definitively it's Constantine, but hmm, sorry, <laughs> I was born. It's in, like uh, yeah, <laughs> same here. That's like when uh, people don't know if it's Magneto or Magneto, but uh, it's yeah. always Magneto. To me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he would also draw the uh, speaking of a uh, Warrior magazine. He drew the Marvel Man slash Miracle Man by Alan Moore and did the uh, infamous graphic. Uh, Earth scene. There's a, a book that came out with it. Actually, came with a a parental warning on it because it was uh, such a graphic scene, and and it was a very graphic. Oh yeah, uh, childbirth scene. Uh, he would begin drawing Swamp Thing with regularity at issue 50, which is July 1986. And I just want to say, if you ever, I don't know if you ever heard of this series, the one. If you find it out there, there there, there was years ago there was a black and white trade that does not do its service because it's a great color crazy book about the cold war and very Mm -hmm. 80s so if you ever see copies of that out there give them a look they can't be too much money i'm sure so who is swamp thing can we really know swamp thing that's the question well he first appeared in the house of secrets 92 that was july 1971 uh it's a horror anthology book and the story was swamp thing by len ween and bernie wrightson uh, the story behind that is that botanist and bioengineer, well, actually, this came later. I don't know why I said that. That was just his first appearance, but when he got his mm. series, uh, which was written by Len Wein and mostly drawn by Bernie Wrightson, we learned that botanist and bioengineer Alec Holland and his wife Linda were working at a lab, which was really just a shack at the Lu- in the Louisiana Bayou. A bomb goes off in the laboratory, later attributed to the Sunderland Corp, that kills Linda and sends Alec running to- into the swamp his entire body ablaze. Initially, it's believed that he somehow turned into the Swamp Thing and sought a cure to return his humanity. But later, with Alan Moore's The Anatomy Lesson, that was issue number 21, February 1984, drawn by Steve Bissett, we learn that Swamp Thing is no longer Alec Holland, but plants infected by his bio-restorative formula, and that ate Alex's corpse and assumed the best approximation to his form. So he lost his humanity, but he got, he gained a bunch of god level powers, and that that's the second issue Alan Moore wrote. Uh, yeah. actually, we discussed that before. 
uh, we like, did. What the heck was that for? That oh, was that, for, was, uh, uh, that was for DC yeah. in the 80s. That's right. So we actually did discuss this issue uh, long ago now uh, on a totally <laughs> different show. But uh, this pretty rich, I'd say this issue fairly well kicks off Alan Moore's run and sets the tone for everything that follows. Yeah, the one before was kind of a house cleaning. So yeah, yeah this was the the big the big launch. This was the one, and it it won some sort of awards and stuff at the time, internal DC awards. Um, mm. So just to set the stage a little bit, what has come before this issue, uh, number sixty one, the Sum- the Sunderland Corp- Corporation. Let me say that again. The Sunderland Corporation, who have a major hard-on for Swamp Thing, detained his girlfriend Abigail Arcane in Gotham while she was traveling. Uh, That was on obscenity laws due to her having sex with a plant god. Swamp Thing (laughs) takes Gotham City hostage by turning it into a jungle in order to get Abigail back, but behind the scenes, Sunderland contracted Lex Luthor to come up with a way to defeat Swamp Thing. And he comes up with some kind of vibrational algorithm that they fire a bullet into Swamp Thing's head, and that sort of separates him from the green, and he can no longer uh, contact the Earth's green. He gets sent off into space. Yes. And that brings us to Saga of the Swamp Thing, number 61. Uh, this cover, it's a... I don't know if it's a famous cover, but it's one you won't forget if you see it. Um, no. It's got it's got Swamp Thing's face screaming. It's a it's a real real close up on his face, but his eyes are replaced with mouths, screaming mouths. So he's got the, a lot of mouths on his face. It's almost a, uh, it's almost like a Hellblazer type of thing. I mean, not a, a, Hell, a Hellraiser yeah. type of thing. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, like a, you know, these <laughs> scary guys from the Hell dimension. And on on his uh, the index finger of his right hand, uh, which is held up to his mouth, he's wearing a Green Lantern ring. Yeah, he's got no respect for protocol, you know, right index <laughs> finger, right hand, that's not where it belongs, you know, although I guess if you're a plant, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, he, I guess his middle finger was just a little bit too thick. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, we're going to welcome ourselves to planet J586. There's a world of sentient plant beings that live in what they call the uh, the Banyam complex, uh, which is a lot of trees interwoven to create like a it's like kind of like indoor. It's like a little apartments in a tree. Yeah. Um, and this may have been more uh, alluding to the Banyan with an N, not an M which is the National Tree of India, which uh, bears figs of the same name. And they're kind of viney-looking and, and sort of similar, like in, you know, Endor, the Ewok village. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it seems to be a communal living where spaces are reserved for specific reasons rather than the residents, who, uh, incidentally, they are all plant people, uh, <laughs> which uh, we figure we, we want to make that uh, perfectly clear. These are all plant people. Yeah, it's going to come up uh, later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now, we're going to meet some of the residents of the Banyam Complex. Uh, we're going to meet Pink-Hued Sherlu, who is a flesh artist. That's right. And that is what it sounds like. If you thought it was a tattoo artist, you were wrong. It's a person that makes art using flesh. Yeah, there's, uh, like, fish that are, like, grafted together by the mouth. There's uh, dyed meats. It's it's pretty gross. Yeah, it's pretty gross stuff, but I guess that's that's how they are, the plants. Yeah, well, they have, they've they've got no respect for uh, for humanity. Uh, <laughs> uh, we got Dizma and Lockless, who are lovers that are intending to get married in front of a uh, a priest of O, and I think O is the god of this uh, of this it's, world. Act. It seems that way, but it sounds a little bit dirty to me. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, when I, hear, when I hear the O, I'm just like, hmm, is that talking about your O face? I don't know what that's about. 
that's, that's a good way to get married, I suppose. I that's a good test, I guess, yeah. And we also got Imrel, who's a yam-looking uh, priest of O, who's uh, having a crisis of faith at the time. Hey, so is my wife. Hey, <laughs> now he's a uh, he's in such a such a uh, crisis state that he is uh, determined to throw himself off a balcony in the Banyam complex and kill himself. Um, meanwhile, over in the cave of death metal, we meet a Green Lantern by the name of Medphil, uh, and he's mourning over his mentor, uh, uh, another character called Jothra, who is uh, lying there dead. And, uh, you know, these are plant people. We want to make sure you all know that. Uh, Medphil is also having a bit of a crisis with Jothra because he respects him so much and, and he's gone. Um, he also references the fact that the Guardians have abandoned Oa. This is all coming out of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. And the core is kind of just there. I mean, there's only really Hal, Guy, and, uh, Hal, Guy, and John yeah. are like the, the whole thing now. Um, now, he recites the Green Lantern Oath to charge his ring, and it's a different Green Lantern Oath than we are accustomed to. <laughs> and I'm going to give it my best here. Let's see here. In forest dark or glade be ferned, no blade of grass shall go unturned. Let those who have the daylight spurned tread not where this Green Lantern, Green Lamp has burned. I almost got through that. Yeah, you're close enough. <laughs> sure. And uh, he cries. Oh. Back at the Banyum complex, things are getting weird. Swamp Thing's essence has landed, and it's making all these intelligent plants go crazy. Uh, Lockless starts growing extra branches uncontrollably before Dismas eyes. Or eye, actually, because all these yes. creatures are do have one eye. That's also something to note. Uh, Sherlow tries to run, but notices one of her legs is overgrown and entangled someone behind her. Um, the plant people of J586 are sort of growing together. Imrel thinks to himself, where is your god now? In so many words, he really just sort of, <laughs> you know, more looks at it in horror, but I like to think that's what he was thinking. Yeah. Uh, so then there's the uh, pretty well-known splash page. It's a title page of a giant crazy swamp thing made of, like, all these interlaced plant people, sort of a giant made of people uh, mm. or humanoid figures. You know, I, I gotta say, I kind of wish the execution was a little better on this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the coloring could have been better. I think maybe it could have been a little, but it's you, know, you get the idea, and it's pretty pretty crazy looking as far as it uh, a giant swamp thing made of smaller swamp things can be. So sure. the people that constitute swamp thing are freaking out, and in turn freaking him out with their chatter. They're also sort of sharing a hive mind and living in each other's like uh, brains or something. On the next page, we see the vantage point of some of those subsumed by the Swamp Thing's arrival, uh, which is, this page is laid out sort of to resemble Swamp Thing's face. It's sort of hard to describe, but, um, yeah, there's no other way to put it. It's, it's the, the layout of this page, the background images sort of come together to simulate his face. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of in a dream world of allegories and confusion, especially for the reader. Uh, Lockless and Dismas see themselves embraced and then dwindling to nothingness and read into it that their pairing is no longer fated, that maybe they shouldn't get married by the priest of O. Imrel's besieged by the faithful who believe in him more than he believes himself, and there's a mountain there for some reason. Mm. And Sherlow regards a piece of artwork that is attributed to her, but which she finds ugly. And still others, they find this new collective, unco this new collective consciousness very liberating. 
Yeah, and the uh, the giant swamp thing, he smashes through the Banyum complex. People scatter before him. Uh, there, though someone does mention earlier that the complex can repair itself. Uh, it's the people right now that are in peril. Uh, things have grown chilly between Dizma and Lockless uh, within Swamp Thing's body. Got a bit of narration here. The, the horror drew back lips made of small boys, bad teeth that made tiny fists. Fifty mad faces stared unblinkingly from behind each eyelid. Yeesh. That's a, yeah. Just the idea that it kind of makes me sick, and I love it. It's yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say it's 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 almost like lyrical. It's yeah. It's, but just the idea of an eye made of people is like eee, freaking me out. <laughs> He is quite the wordsmith, that yeah. animal. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sherlo faces her own loneliness in a gallery of nicely framed blank canvases. So there's no more artwork there. Uh, Imrel has uh, joined hands with many panicked people, forming an O. Mm. Uh, finally, Medfil shows up. Some people are glad, and others are skeptical. And uh, now we get a little bit inside of Medfil's ha- head here. He considers his options. He figures he could blast through Swamp Thing with a ring blast, perhaps. <laughs> that would uh, that would put the but that would put the people that comprise the Swamp Thing body in jeopardy right now. Uh, he could also make uh, giant shackles to bind the Swamp Thing and then crush the people underneath with the with underneath the shackles. Uh, he could stun the Swamp Thing, shattering the giant and sending everyone toppling to the ground. Uh, now he's totally he's he can't come up with a, a a consistent thought here because he's lost without his mentor Jathra. And uh, as people see him not doing anything, they start to lose their faith in him. And uh, he remembers uh, Jothra's advice to engage the mind of his foes rather than the physical form. I want to point out that by this time, Hal Jordan would have already punched a swamp thing with a giant boxing glove and killed hundreds and not and not and just kept going. So, yeah, and he would have denied any responsibility. Yeah, he would have said he was taken over by Parallax. Sorry, I had a, I had a dose of Parallax, so I punched a bunch of plant people into the stratosphere. But hey, I got, I got the job done. He, he he's spraying he's spraying fake snow onto his temples. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's white. Yeah. Uh, now Medfield scans Swamp Thing with his ring and elicits a couple of crazy psychedelic circles, uh, which is comic book shorthand for vibrational sequence, I suppose. And uh, each is unique to a different planet or element. Yeah, we actually see are... this throughout the uh, this time that Swamp Thing's, he's sort of going from planet to planet in space, hmm. and each planet he sort of picks up another circle. Like another essence, yeah. yeah. So that, that this has sort of been a, a storytelling device throughout the whole, this part of the run. So this it's, arc, yeah. yeah. And uh, the the people are people the plant people below are all ooh ah <laughs> uh, they like the colors the crazy colors here uh, Swamp Thing is dazzled by his own light show and while he stands agape uh, Medfield picks the giant apart person by person using his ring to take them all to safety uh, now back in the real world Dizma and Lockless turn away from one another and they part they each know that uh, the other they each know the other two intimately. Uh, Emerald stands smiling, sworn by happy children, now convinced of the existence of O. Not according to my wife. <laughs> I just had to get another one in. <laughs> <laughs> Sherlock uh, now craves acceptance and friendship and is determined to end it if she is spurned. This is that artist, the meat artist. Yeah. Uh, Medfield catches Swamp Thing's trippy vibrational essence in a jaw. Yeah, just uh, take our word for that. I, yeah. It's hard to explain, but basically this thing is lined up in a, a tube, you know, like a glass tube. So mm-hmm. 
back in the death metal cave and i want to say the reason they call it the death metal cave it, it looks like possibly a down spaceship or some sort of a laboratory is going to play there right possibly you know that's a <laughs> That's the death metal cave. This is the, oh, yes. this is the death metal cave. But one thing they, they happens early on in the book uh, is when uh, Lockless and Dismar are together is that the room asks them if they were comfortable. So they're always communicating with their Banyum complex. But in the death metal sure. cave, uh, the walls don't talk to you. So uh, that's why. And it's also made of metal. That's why they call it that. So Medfield speaks to Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing explains that he's going around the universe looking for a cure to whatever's keeping him from reattaching to Earth. He didn't mean to cause trouble, didn't expect the plant of J586 to be sentient. Medfield says there are disciplines to modify vibrational biorhythms, and he could teach them to Swamp Thing, but it will take time. And they offer they also offer a spin class on Tuesdays and a hot yoga on Saturdays. Uh, that's, all, that's worth hanging out for. So mm-hmm. uh, Swamp Thing says he needs a body to inhabit if he's going to hang out on J586. And say, why don't you inhabit the body of Jothra, Medfield's dead mentor? And now we get uh, Swamp Thing's version of Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and not creepy at all. So Whoa. Swamp Thing gets through his training rapidly while Medfield cherishes some more moments with his fallen friend Jothra. Although, I just want to point out, it ain't him, dude. Okay? Yeah. It's, it's Swamp Thing in your dead mentor's skin. Uh, that's what's happening here. Uh, <laughs> on their last night, they have a little conversation. Yeah, Medfield says, you, you'll, you'll be leaving soon. Swamp Thing says, yes, I am confident of my ability to modify my wavelength. Assured that the Earth will once again accept me. I am anxious to return there. I cannot thank you enough for aiding me so when I have brought you only trouble. No, not trouble. You must not think that. You are too forgiving. I shall impose upon you no further. Goodbye, my friend. Wait! You have given me more than you can possibly know. You've given me a chance to come to terms with my grief. A chance to say goodbye to Jothra. Jothra's body slumps over into Medville. (laughs) Medville! (laughs) While Swamp Thing takes off like some kind of green light. We get a bit of narration. Uh, From their separate windows, Dizma and Lockless watch the Emerald Shooting Star ascend. Elsewhere, Sherlu wants to paint it to capture its loneliness. Imral, pausing in mid-sermon, takes it for a sign. And in the Lizard Gardens, Great Medville, and the weeping is good. Uh, from J586, a bolt of Greek fire crackles into the void, going away, going home. Uh, then there's an epilogue that isn't relevant after we disclose the end of Moore's run, which we'll do right now. Swamp Thing makes it back to Earth and exacts delicious revenge on the main members of the Sunderland Corp. And he gets back with Abigail and grows a gigantic lily pad house in the bayou for them to share. And they live happily ever after. 
Until Rick Veitch gets his hands on it. Yeah, let's uh, we'll check in with Alan Moore post Swamp Thing here uh, briefly because I'm sure we'll be covering him elsewhere. Um, Moore would uh, go on to write some seminal Green Lantern core stories, including uh, Mogo Doesn't Socialize, which appeared in Green Lantern number 188 in May 1985 with art by Dave Gibbons. Uh, Tigers, T-Y-G-E-R-S, in Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual number two. That was 1986, drawn by Kevin O'Neill. And these two stories comprise much of what the basis uh, for today's Green Lantern continuity is. It's uh, it's very foundational, very seminal uh, stories. Yeah, well, uh, long after the fact, but... Certainly, and even play into the emotional spectrum a bit, if I'm not mistaken. Um, now, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, he wrote, there was a two-parter in Superman number uh, 423 in Action Comics 583, and those were both September 1986 with art by Kurt Swan. It, uh, that's what pretty much wrapped up the uh, pre-crisis Superman continuity. Yeah, that was his goodbye. Um, yeah, that was his fond farewell. Um, he wrote uh, something, what was it, Watchmen? <laughs> I think that's what it was called, right. Yeah, yeah, with uh, Dave Gibbons, that was over 1985 and 86. Uh, the contract stipulated that the rights to the story and characters would re- would ultimately revert to Moore and Gibbons after it had been out of print for a while, which is fairly standard uh, publishing agreement. So what do you think DC did? They never let it go out of print. <laughs> no, uh, in, in fact, also, there's like 10 editions of it you can get right now. Yes. <laughs> Now, uh, also, more disputed DC producing a replica of the comedian's badge, which is that famous smiley face with the little droplet of blood on it, and not forwarding profits. Uh, and he also claimed that he made uh, 2% of the sales on the graphic novel. And uh, this ended his time at DC Comics, sort of. Uh, but that's a story that we will cover another day. Yeah, well, that's uh, later 90s stuff. Uh, yeah. Rich, Rick Veitch, post-Swamp Thing, he took over Swamp Thing writing duties after more left with issue 65. That was in October 1987. I uh, had a storyline that was meant to go to issue 91, but in issue 88, he planned to reveal that the very crucifix upon which Jesus Christ hung was infused with an avatar of the green. DC refused to run the story. Veitch walked and vowed never to work with DC Comics again until it was printed, which was a lie. Yeah. Uh, issue 88, uh, which came out in September 1989, is credited to Doug Wheeler as the writer. Uh, Many were hopeful that we would eventually see this when DC announced Vertigo Resurrected, where the previously rejected Warren Ellis Hellblazer story Shoot finally saw print, but we didn't. Um, And I've never, it's never seen print. I guess it's out there drawn somewhere. Yeah, I've seen the cover, but that's all I've seen. I've seen that too. I've seen the cover, but I've never seen any interiors, but I would assume there's something. Maybe not. Maybe they never even went to the uh, penciler with it, and that was the end Mm. of it. So uh, he went back to his independent roots post-TMNT fervor and created some black-and-white comics of his own. Then he worked with Alan Moore again on 1963 and Supreme, both by Image. Uh, he was hired on as a regular artist for Moore's America's Best Comics, which was an imprint of Wildstorm, which eventually got folded into DC. Yep. Uh, and he did return to do some work for DC in the early 2000s, but at this point, he clearly writes his own ticket. I saw stuff like the you know Justice Society mini series, and uh, I think he does whatever he wants to do. Yeah, whatever uh, tickles his fancy. And you know, it sounds like he's got a long enough pedigree. So, um, but to be honest, I don't think he's he's not personally a great artist, but I think he gets the job done on a on a book like this that has sort of a sure. creepy feel. But what's funny is that this arc of Swamp Thing uh, is like science fiction. 
So Absolutely. it sort of pulls you out of that old Bernie Wrightson kind of, uh, you know, ghastly, ghastly angles, uh, kind of horror look that you see in comics. Yeah. Um, but anyway, now that I have ripped my throat up with the Swamp Thing <laughs> voice, if anybody wants to talk about Swamp Thing, tell us what they think of this issue, this run, Alan Moore, anything, you can write to us at weirdsciencedccomics at gmail.com. Uh, you can read our writings, uh, reviews, and whatever else every week on weirdsciencedccomics.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, every week I tell you to, uh, that you should check Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com every day where he reviews a new DC comic. And right now you are in the, uh, really the beginnings of the horror month, right? The yeah, I think I started a little bit too early. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm trying to do a different horror book every day, or a, a horror or Halloween themed book every day for October. And, That's right. Uh, you said you did a bunch of Blackest Nights. Uh, yeah. And I, I saw that you, I saw that you did. Uh, you will believe in ghosts. One of my favorite. Yes. One of my favorite long weird titles. So uh, <laughs> you definitely check it out. Always, always real entertaining. Great snapshots. Real funny. Real insightful stuff. And it ends it with a bunch of ads from the book. Mm-hmm. So it's the next best thing to reading the book. Sure. So, and it's free. Uh, and it's free. So it's even better <laughs> in some cases than reading the book, especially depending on what book it is. True. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he does those two folks. So make sure you go check out that website. And uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Chris, you got anything else? I think that's it. Uh, just uh, keep the uh, keep the suggestions coming. Yeah, we'll try to keep them straight. But uh, yeah, we are mm-hmm. getting through them. But we have. <laughs> We have some suggestions coming up, and uh, we welcome anything. Just remember, we do DC Comics from their yesteryear of publishing, okay? DC Comics that are old. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, until next week, uh, thanks for listening, and keep it on the treadmill florally. Yeah.